beginning in verse 19. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. We're going to spend a few minutes in this story and the remainder of the story. I just want to sort of, first of all, draw out the main characters. Jesus is obviously one of the main characters. He's hard to miss. There were the disciples here in this story as well, uh, 12 of them at this point. Um, four of them, at least of these 12, we know were fishermen. Some people think that there were more than that that were actually fishermen, but we can know for sure James and John, Andrew and Peter were fishermen. Also in this story, we have a little boat. We don't know how big the boat was. I Googled the boat that crossed the Sea of Galilee and I saw lots of pictures. So if you wanna do that, it's, there are pictures of it all over the web. So you can see pictures of the actual boat. Not really. But the little boat is in the story and then the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is seven miles wide and 13 miles long. We don't know exactly the trajectory across the Sea of Galilee but it must have been a sizable portion for them to be stuck in it all night long. We know also that it was a dark and stormy night, which is common to every great story, if my kids could testify to that. On a dark and stormy night is the way great stories begin. So that's what's going to go down in these next few minutes. Something too that I've thought of as I've spent time considering this story is it just seems like a setup. It seems like Jesus set this entire situation up. He just successfully fed the multitudes and they wanted to make him king. The other accounts, the other gospels tell us. He'd fed the multitudes and they wanted to make him an earthly king. And it says immediately though, he sent his disciples away. He made them get into the boat and go before him to the other side. I thought this uniquely uncharacteristic of his ministry. You don't see a lot of times where Jesus is sending his disciples away from him. This is a very, his ministry was very incarnate. He spent day and night with them all the time. So this was a unique time where he's sending them away and it seems like a setup. I can't but imagine that they would have loved to debrief around the campfire after that day, after he fed the multitudes. I'm just imagining how some of those conversations would have gone down, like a great laugh as you imagine Peter when he looked into that basket and kept drawing out bread, like Peter, the look on your face was priceless. 
What a great campfire debrief that would have been. He could have had them wait with him and even pray with him, but he didn't. He sent them across the sea that night. It also didn't have to be stormy that night. If you believe with me that Jesus' lordship over creation was just as much true and consistent throughout his earthly ministry as it has been before and since, then you can believe with me that he ordained that storm. It's not a coincidence. He immediately sent them across the Sea of Galilee into a storm. It seems as if he set this crazy night up. So these guys, they strike out in the boat. A boat that is least big enough to carry 13 is only carrying 12 right now. There's no motor, no Evinrude. There's no GPS. There's no radio. There's probably a sail. We don't know if they could have used it on this dark and stormy night. But there are definitely paddles. And they find themselves a long way from land, it says. Many stadia. A stadia is an eighth of a mile. And it's just many. We don't know how much, but it's a bunch. They're beaten by the waves, it tells us. And the wind was against them. And this all takes place in the fourth watch of the night. The Sea of Galilee is a unique setup structure-wise. Where it sits, it's a very shallow lake. It sits in the middle of a, of a mountainous area where cold wind sweeps off these mountains down to the warm water on the Sea of Galilee and can whip up a squall in a moment's notice. It's a very dangerous sea. And a squall is what happened that night. It must have been a terrifying experience. This wasn't the first storm that they'd been in. If they're fishermen, you could expect they'd been in a few. But we know from just a few chapters earlier in Matthew chapter 8 that they had been in a terrible storm while Jesus is asleep in the bow. And it's in that storm that fishermen are thinking, we're going to die. We don't know if this storm was as bad as that one, but we can imagine that it must have been a doozy if they're stranded literally in the middle of the lake with the winds and the waves beating them. The fourth watch of the night tells us that it's the latest hours of the night, the earliest of the morning hours before the sun comes up. It's the hours that are nearing dawn. The saying goes, it's darkest before the dawn, which isn't actually true, but it feels that way. If you spend an entire night out and you're waiting for that sun to come up, it seems the darkest, and it's in these hours that seem the darkest when the wind and the waves had them immobilized. It's here that Jesus shows up. It's here in what probably felt like the smack dab middle of the Sea of, sea of Galilee. They probably felt like the smack dab middle of the night that he comes to them walking on the sea. He doesn't come in another boat paddling somehow miraculously faster than they were, which he could have done. Obviously, there's no room for a jet ski or rescue boat. He comes walking on the very waves that enslaved and immobilized them. It's like he wanted to be seen. It's like he wanted them to experience seeing him in their darkest and most hopeless moments. Moments. They must have felt completely alone 
at that time of the night. And Jesus finds them, though, in the tempest. And here he announces his presence and he announces his identity. See, there's a tragic translation note here in this passage. It is what of one I will call an I am statement where Jesus declares his godness. It's in this moment that he tells them, he doesn't say, take heart, it's just me, Jesus, don't be afraid. He says in the original language, take heart, I am, do not be afraid. What a wasted moment it would be for him to just say, it's just me, Jesus, y'all don't be afraid. But it's a moment where he shows up announcing his presence and his identity. Let's see what happens next in verse 28. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased and those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. Peter here asks Jesus to command him to come to him. Sounds like Peter. As if the storm wasn't enough and as if seeing Jesus walking on the waves wasn't enough, Peter needs to either test himself or test his Lord. I think it's the latter because he says, if it's you, command me to come to you. And then Peter finds on a dark night far from shore as he cries out, Lord, save me. In the middle of the Sea of Galilee, a place that I'm sure he was familiar with, he finds out that he sinks after all. But he also finds out that Jesus saves. All of them learned that that night. That God the Son delivers his people through water safely to the other side. It's just what he does. I don't know about you, but I know about me. When I've been thinking on this story and considering this story, it's just sounded familiar. Sound like there are other versions of this story that aren't quite exactly the same, but they're familiar enough that they're worth considering this morning. Just a few of them. There's a couple of biggies that ought to come to mind. Here's the first of those. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Another dark and stormy night that lasted 40 dark and stormy nights. 
As God the Son ordained that storm on the Sea of Galilee, this God the Father ordains both the storm and the deliverance for Noah and his family safely to the other side after a year-long cruise. Safely to the other side because it's just what God does. Another that hopefully came to mind, or if it didn't, then hopefully it will after this morning. If you'd like to follow along with me, I'm going to share the story. You can just listen. We're kind of in listening mode, but if you're one of those that just has to see it, it's in Exodus 14, verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, it's because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, verse 30. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. This time the tempest is different. This time it's a tempest of an army bearing down on them with the Red Sea right in front of them. A tempest of Pharaoh's army. They're immobilized. They're hopeless in what must have felt like the darkest moments of their lives. And God shows up and delivers his people through the water safely to the other side because that's what God does. Those are a couple biggies that hopefully came to mind. There's a few that are lesser known. The Jordan River also happened at the 40-year point. After this account, 40 years later, after they wandered in the wilderness, they crossed the Jordan River. The waters pointed as it parted as they went into the promised land, and they crossed safely and dryly to, I don't know if dryly is a word, but it ought to be, to, if bigly can be a word this week, dryly can safely to the other side. There's Moses in the Nile. God saves a little wee baby that would later lead his people out of Egypt. He's in a little tiny little ark. He's gathered up safely and into the arms of his own mother on the other side because it's what God does. There's Jonah. God saves him via a nauseous whale safely on the other side of a season of rebellion and disobedience because that's what God does. And then there's Paul's many shipwrecks. Second Corinthians 11 tells us he was shipwrecked three 
times. What on earth? I mean, if that's going to happen once or twice, why would you get in a boat again? Paul did. He did. He was shipwrecked three times, and it says he spent a night and a day adrift at sea. Paul was well acquainted with the other side of the dark night in water. And he's also well acquainted with a God who draws him out and through. It is a theme in our Bibles, people. Time after time, God draws and delivers his people through water because it's just what he does. So what's up with this water theme? I want to pan out for a moment if I can. Just two passages on the bookends of our Bibles, Genesis chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 21. If you want to grab those and look or you can just continue to listen. Pan way out. I mean, you can't pan out any further than the first chapter of our Bible and the end of our Bible. So let's see what unfolds here in Genesis chapter one. We're gonna try and make sense of what's up with this water thing. What is God doing with this theme of drawing his people in and through water? Genesis chapter one, verse one says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Listen to this, the, wor- the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What I want to talk about in these next few minutes is the ancient view of the sea, how that makes sense in baptism and how that makes sense to what God has done over and over and over again. This passage here says the spirit hovers above the waters. Our uh, Peter Lighthart described this passage saying the spirit hovers above the waters as an ordered and fruitful world comes from a formless and void sea. Just imagine this deep, dark, sinister context where he hasn't even spoken light into it yet. There's just this deep, dark waters. It says darkness was over the face of the deep. Maybe that's where this ancient understanding of the sea came from, but it was believed to be a place of lostness and hopelessness, a sinister, dark place. So to go back into the sea in some ways was to be decreated. To go into the sea would be in some ways to move back into formlessness and to move into the void. When you begin to think that way, you read some passages differently. Matthew or Micah chapter seven, verse 19 says, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea because that's where that goes into the abyss, into that dark, deep, hopeless place that's a fitting spot for those sins you might read more familiar passages differently like this Matthew chapter 18 but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea throw him into the abyss where sinners in sinful place, sinful things go. It's fitting then, or you make sense then that you realize in Revelation chapter 13, if you're over in Revelation already, you can look at this passage if you'd like. If not, you can just listen to what emerges from the sea. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns and seven heads with 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads course he's going to come out of the sea 
if that's this dark, sinister place. But here's some good news for you. I asked you to turn to Revelation chapter 21. Look at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. If that's the ancient understanding of the sea, if that's sort of the biblical sort of connection for the sea, it's not the only meaning of the sea, but it's a developed thought. You see it in the Psalms, a place you don't want to go, a place of formlessness and void and abyss. You hear that the new heavens and new earth won't have one. It's fitting because there's no more room for a tempest. No more tempests in the new heavens and new earth. No more waves that are facing you to your face or that are in your face where you can't move forward. No more shipwrecks. No more floods. There's no need to even be drawn out anymore because you've been drawn completely and fully. The new heavens and new earth will have no more sea. So in some ways, he's provided with the sea, with this theme throughout, the pitch black background for something really beautiful. With the abyss in the background, God stands strong and mighty in drawing his people through and out. It's especially fitting that at least four of his disciples that he called were fishermen, men drawn from the sea to follow Christ. And this Christ, he high steps the tempest, showing the people, his people specifically, that he owns gravity. Showing his people that he made hydrogen. He made oxygen. Showing his people he's no slave to density or gravity or wind or waves. He commands those things. And then he reaches out like he reached for Peter, a drowning fisherman. Note that. A drowning fisherman, frightened and helpless. And he brings us through something dark and sinister. He delivers us safely to the other side. In baptism, we celebrate corporately as he draws us through water, just like he does. Now, I asked you to have 1 Peter 3 ready. You can turn there. This is where we're going to, this is going to lead us into our baptisms this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. But I want to share this thought before I share this passage. I think before really studying baptism in previous um, installments as a church, as I grew up studying baptism or considering baptism, I was baptized as a six-year-old. I saw many baptisms in the church. My understanding of baptism was that it was a symbol of something. That it was a ceremony that illustrated something that God has done. And there's the potential to look at baptism and think that it's just a metaphor of his delivering his people from real peril, like the examples that I've considered already. It's just a metaphor that reminds us of how he has delivered his people from really dangerous situations. Well, I want to offer this thought. Those are metaphor. Those deliverances from what we might perceive as real peril 
our metaphor of what the real deliverance is that he's done for us in biblical baptism. Those are metaphor of this. This isn't the metaphor. This isn't the illustration. Those are the shadows that pointed toward the substance that is this. It's so much more than a ceremony. Listen to this passage from 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Watch that. Just hold on to Noah. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Hold on to Noah and his story. Baptism, which corresponds to this, that this is pointing back to the story of Noah. That's what gives us license to look at some of these watery ordeals and deliverances through those watery ordeals as understanding what God has done for us in Christ. We're not getting all crazy and pulling up a bunch of crazy stories that might have some connection. This tells us we have license to do that. And Noah and the flood is the first place to go. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as this, as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Baptism, the actual physical event of getting in a pool of water, that no more saves you than showing up at a a chapel, a man and a woman, makes you married. God shows up and reckons something true. In that wedding ceremony, two people walk into a building and they leave in the eyes of God in union. This is not a ceremony because God shows up and something happens when we make an appeal to God for a good conscience. This is a conscious appeal where we say in so many words, these words, the wind and the waves are against us. We are a long way from shore, God, and we can't get there on our own. We are hopeless and helpless. We have no way through it and no way out of it, God. We need a savior that can high step the wind and the waves. We need a savior that not only survives the tempest himself, but commands the tempest and is now seated at your right hand. We need a savior that we can call out to with Peter these words, Lord, save me. Man, if that's what you're doing in baptism, man, it's saving because he shows up. When it's an appeal to God for a good conscience through Christ's finished work, he shows up. By faith, we lash our boat to him. He is our salvation. That's what we're saying in baptism. He is the only remedy for our conscience. He is our righteousness. If that's happening in this baptismal pool, if that's what this person brings to this moment, then we trust like a wedding. It's a moment where God shows up and reckons them something. God does what he does as we appeal to him
here in an ordinary trough with regular old water, nothing special about it, we are reckoned part of his baptized and washed church. That's what happens. 